This morning, we, before we look at a great passage of Scripture, one of the great missions texts of the Bible that is kind of hidden away in a little book called Third John, just uh, two pages before the book of Re- Revelation, um, I, I just think we'll see some things there that will be really helpful. But I want to just raise the question before we go into that text, just to ask the question of why, why this emphasis on missions? I mean, we have so many problems right here, right in our own neighborhoods, right in our own city, right in our own state, um, whether it's Michigan or whether it's Minnesota. Um, why, why this focus on the ends of the earth? And, uh, and I just want to stress that the reason we do is because it was commanded by Jesus. You know, you think of when someone's getting ready to depart, whether it's through death or through moving or ascending into heaven, um, the last words become really important. And uh, you'll notice in Scripture that the, the last 40 days that Jesus um, was on earth after his resurrection, right before Pentecost, um, he met for 40 days um, with his disciples, different appearances along the way. It says that he taught them about the kingdom of God. Oh, I'd love to have been to that seminar on the kingdom of God, to have Jesus the resurrected Christ, teach me on the kingdom of God. But he bracketed his resurrection appearances with these great climactic moments. The last one, of course, was in in Acts, where he's getting ready to ascend into heaven. And he says, uh, you will receive, stay in Jerusalem until power from on high comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses. And uh, both in Jerusalem and Samaria and Judea and the ends of the earth. And then after he said these things, he uh, ascended into heaven. And, uh, and so his last words were, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, beginning right in your own locale. But at the beginning of his resurrection appearances, remember when he was raised from the dead and, and uh, he had said before he died, he said, I'm going to meet you in Galilee, at a mountain in Galilee. And uh, so after he rose from the dead, they were told, go to Galilee and you will see Jesus. And Jesus appeared to them in a mountain in Galilee. And there he gave the great commission where he said, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So those were Jesus' last words to us. His resurrection appearances before he ascended to the Father. He said, I've been on mission as the Father has sent me. Now so ascend I you. And so he expected the church to then take up his mission to bring the redeeming love of God um, through the proclamation of the word of God and uh, the retelling of the story of the victory of God to the ends of the earth. And that's what has been um, the occupation of the church since then, along with other things. But uh, when Jesus says, go and make disciples of all the nations, um, 
I don't know what you think of when you hear the word nation. Um, when I was at Bethlehem, I came in 1980, and uh, both John Piper and I came at the same time, and, uh, and missions was not real front and center in our lives. Um, you know, if someone was going in missions, we'd say, oh, go for it. You know, of course, if you, how can you love Jesus and not love missions? But our focus was on the reaching the students in the Twin Cities and trying to bring them in. And, and uh, so it was not at the forefront until someone told us, he said, when you hear the word nation in the Bible, don't think of country. Don't think of the United Nations. United Nations has, what, 197 countries or thereabouts, um, politically defined, boundaried land masses. And, uh, and the church is in every one of those countries. And so in that sense, isn't the Great Commission done? But this couple um, challenged us to think that um, when you hear the word nation, Think of it in terms of the Ojibwe nation or the Dakota nation, the Sioux nation. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. Nation is used that way also. So there it's not politically defined, bordered people. It, it's an ethno-linguistic grouping of people, people that are united not by a political um, decision, but rather they're united by culture and language and history. And when you look at the world through that lens, you realize there's a lot more than 197 nations in the world. In fact, in Cameroon, where Brian and Heather are serving and where I'm involved, um, that's one country in the United Nations. But there are 290 ethno-linguistic groupings of people at least. 290 languages spoken. And so when Jesus says, go and make disciples of all the nations, he is referring, I believe, not so much to countries, but he's referring to every tribe and tongue and people and nation. We see in Revelation chapter 7, 9, when the veil is kind of taken away and we get a glimpse into what heaven is going to be like, and it says that they're gathered around the throne are going to be people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And that really defines what these nations are. In, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, it says that Jesus was slain and he purchased people for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So if we love the atoning work of Jesus and the global worship of God, missions has to be a part of our hearts in all different kinds of ways. The last thing I'm going to do this morning is try to guilt you into missions. Um, but just to help awaken us all the more to the privilege that we have to have our lives count in some way for the global glory of God, beginning right in our own family, right in our own neighborhood, but extending to the nations. And so that's my prayer is that God will, will use um, this text of scripture to see that we all play a part in this. And, uh, and it's really exciting. It's an exciting thing to, to think that, that God has mercifully called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And I don't know when it happened for you. Some of you might have happened when you were so little you don't remember. 
when it happened. And uh, Charles Spurgeon was aware that people feel that way. Is I, I can't point to a conversion experience. Am I saved? And Spurgeon's answer was, um, uh, doesn't matter so much when the sun rose. What matters is that the sun is shining. If the sun is shining, you know it rose. So if Jesus is shining in your hearts this morning, even if you can't point back to a specific experience, um, that's what matters. It shows that you've been born again. And uh, if you're indifferent to God and, and uh, you can take it or leave it, and maybe you're just here because someone pressured you to come, you're welcome here. But at the same time, there's something waiting for you because God wants us to be born again unto a living hope through the preaching of his word. And so may the Lord, uh, may the Lord do that work in us. Um, but let's look at 3 John, verses 1 to 8. So you can turn to it. It's just two pages before the book of Revelation. And uh, the very last letter is Jude. And then there's 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And uh, so if you want to read it through the Bible program, usually by the time you get, to get that far, you kind of are just kind of getting through, and then Revelation comes and kind of gets agitated and so forth. And, and, uh, but oftentimes people don't give attention to 3rd John in the degree that we should because it is the Word of God, the inspired Word of God. The same Holy Spirit that inspired Romans inspired 3 John. And, uh, and this text came alive to me in, in the 1980s, I think. And uh, um, I'd read it many, many times, but for some reason, it just came alive to me. And I saw things that have fed me and shaped me involved in, in missions. So I want us to walk our way through it, just verse by verse, and uh, you can have your Bibles open or you can look up at the screen. And uh, it's written, let's read the whole thing. And, uh, and then we'll come back and look at it verse by verse. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. And I'm, I'm reading from the New American Standard. We have the ESV. I, don't know, I think it's the New American Standard up there, up there as well. Maybe not. Maybe it's ESV. But it was, I was studying in the, in the New American Standard Version when it came alive to me. So, um, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that in all respects that you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. For I was very glad when brethren came and bore witness to your truth, that is how you are walking in truth, I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers. And they bear witness to your love before the church. And you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men, such people, that we may be fellow workers with the truth. So let's walk our way through this text together. And uh, this is what I'm trying to do in, in Cameroon. I was talking to Jason before the service, and, 
and said that in, in Cameroon and in many countries, um, education is built on kind of a, a learning by rote, where the teacher will just say something enough times, you have to write it down, and then you memorize it and you take the exam. And a lot can be learned that way, but there's not always um, teaching that, that imparts the critical skills of thinking through a passage of scripture. And so that's one of the things that we're trying to do in our teaching in Cameroon is, is to teach these, these folks that love the word of God, but teach them how to follow it thought by thought and uh, to ask questions as they go. And, uh, and so that they're not just learning by memory, but they're learning by study and by gaining insight. So let's just do that together. First of all, it begins, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. So the elder, that's John the Apostle. And this is John the Apostle toward the end of his life. Remember, he was, he was the one apostle that never was martyred. And, uh, and he, but he suffered. He was banished to the island of Patmos in the book of Revelation. But he lived a long time. And, uh, and solid tradition has it that he spent his latter years in Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey, and probably in Ephesus or somewhere around there. That's the best thinking that's, that we have on where he was. But now he calls himself the elder. And maybe he was an elder in the church that he was attending. There probably was. He's an apostle. Um, but it's probably referring also to his age, that he's now an old man. And uh, maybe, maybe in his 90s, 80s, 90s, we don't know how old he was. But uh, this was probably written somewhere in the 90s, one of the last books written in the New Testament. And so he's an old man. And uh, he writes the letter, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. And uh, first of all, I just, I'm just drawn to, to Gaius, or to, to John. He's the, he's the beloved disciple and so forth. He's the one that leaned on Jesus' breast at the peoples of the world. And uh, he's the one that stood at the foot of the cross. You know, when all the disciples scattered, he somehow found his way back to the cross when Jesus was hanging there. And, and, uh, and Jesus looked down and he said to, to John, he said, he said, behold your mother, looking to Mary. And then he said to Mary, behold your son. And uh, so John had a special place and now he's an old man, and uh, but he 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 he's a, he's a loving man. He, he calls Gaius beloved, and he does that again in verse two. He does it again in verse five. I thought that just says something. He wants Gaius to know that he's loved, loved by him. He says in the next phrase, "Whom I love in truth." But beloved probably is much more comprehensive, and probably the main focus is loved by God. And so here's this old apostle. He wants believers to know that they're loved by God. And some of you are here this morning and, and maybe going through hard times or maybe you just, does God really love me? And he does. He loves you. His love for you is not based on your perfection, on your performance. If you're a believer, his love is based on the fact that 
his son resides in you and is transforming you from one degree of glory to the next. And you are in the state of being loved by God. And so may God just give you a fresh breath of his love this morning that that sinks deeper into his heart, into your heart. So the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Verse 2, beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health. Let's just stop there. This verse is used by... um, people who are sometimes known as prosperity preachers, preaching the prosperity gospel. There's a a whole movement around the world that unfortunately had its origin here in the United States, teaching that if you have enough faith, you will be healthy, you will be wealthy, and if you are not wealthy, it's a problem with your faith. If you are not healthy, it's a problem with your health, with your faith. And so it's just this message that, that, that calls people to um, claim and demand healing or wealth. And where sometimes in unscrupulous shepherds and pastors say that if you give your money to this church or to my ministry, God is going to bless you and make you wealthy. And... Uh, and that message has, has really um, just spread like wildfire, especially in the most impoverished areas of the world. And people are just longing for being lifted out of their poverty and their oppression. And so if a preacher comes and says, God wants you to be prosperous and in good health, um, you say, whoa, that's what I want. And so they come and they listen and then there's formulas giving and, and so forth. But then, like most churches, people are not prosperous and they're not healthy and, and condemnation comes, I don't have enough faith, and disillusionment comes and it becomes tragic or self-deception comes and you claim that you're healed when you're not. But anyway, that's a, that's a message that has swept into Africa and into Cameroon. In fact, just uh, six miles from where I stay in Cameroon is where Brian stays. And just instead of turning right to his house, if you turn left and go a few minutes, um, you'll be, be at one of the biggest prosperity churches in Yaoundé. And uh, at that prosperity church, the pastor was there for a long time and was getting wealthy. And, uh, and finally, he decided just to leave the church. And he left with uh, $60,000. And he went to Switzerland and just abandoned the church, thinking that he would live the rest of his life in Switzerland. And he got to Switzerland and realized Switzerland's a pretty expensive place. $60,000 is not going to get you real, real far in Switzerland. And so he lived it up for a while. Then he came back broke. He came back to the church demanded that they take him back. And, uh, I mean, there's something really deeply wrong. The church took him back. And uh, so anyway, there's just that mindset. And, and they take it from this text. I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health. And the wrong conclusion is, 
That means that God wants you to be healthy right now. He wants you to be wealthy right now. So you claim it. Jesus' death purchased it. You claim it. Well, I personally believe Jesus' death did purchase your perfect healing. Jesus' Jesus' death purchased your a life of, of unbelievable riches. But not at any time and bless you financially. He can break in any time and do a miracle of healing. But more often than not, the perfect health comes after the resurrection. And the wealth comes. We're going we're gonna to walk on streets of gold in heaven. The thing that we value the most here becomes the tar of heaven. And the riches in heaven, because of the presence of God, are super abounding beyond anything we can ask or imagine. And so, yes, it is God's will for you to be wealthy in him and for you to be healthy with a resurrection body that you may taste from time to time. In the, the kingdom of God, that already can break into the present time. And, uh, but at the same time, the Bible is true where it says the outer man is decaying and is wasting away. And uh, I don't know if any of you have felt it. If you're after 20s, you're beginning to feel it pretty regularly. And uh, at the airport, I had to go through the special scanning machine because I have a, a new hip right here and, and uh, some nice titanium right there and set off the bells and whistles loudly in the airports, um, but uh, we are wasting away. But still, it's right to pray for healing. If someone's sick, pray for them. Pray for them. Pray that they might be healed. And, uh, but listen to John. He says, Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health. What struck me then is the second part of that verse, just as your soul is prospering. So maybe... John's, or maybe Gaius' business is not going well. Maybe he's sick, needs a prayer. But the one thing that is true is that Gaius' soul is prospering. And I thought, wow, what does that mean? What does it mean to have a prospering soul? It made me want to just read this passage more, more clearly. A prospering soul. Is your soul prospering this morning? Is it, is it going on a good path? Is kind of the, the literal word behind it. It's going on a good path. Is your soul prospering? So let's see if, if the text will tell us what a prospering soul looks like in this context. He says in verse 3, he starts out with a four, which means he's going to give a reason for what he just said. I think he's giving a reason for why he's confident that Gaius' soul is prospering, even if anything else isn't prospering and his body is in rough shape. His soul is prospering. He says, for I was very glad. So here you get this situation where you got this godly old apostle and how somehow he heard something about Gaius that made this crinkly old face break into a smile. And I think it's a great question to ask. What makes a godly old apostle smile? So let's find out. I was very glad when brethren came and bore witness to your truth. 
So John had heard a testimony from these brothers who came and they bore witness to your truth. It's interesting. I mean, I think truth just means you're living authentically. You're living according to what you value, what you teach, what you preach, what you believe. And, uh, and these brethren came to John's church and they bore witness to Gaius' truth. That is how you are walking in the truth. His walking is, ma- is matching his talking. Gaius is walking in the truth. And uh, now we've got to find out what this is. Verse 4, John says, I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. So that opens the door a little bit more about who this Gaius is. He's one of John's children, that in all likelihood not his physical child, but rather one of John's spiritual children. In John's life of all these years as a believer in Jesus Christ, he no doubt discipled many people. And one of the people at some point in his life, Gaius came into his sphere of influence. And John must have poured into him in such a way that he became like a father to Gaius. Gaius became like his child. And now Gaius is a grown man. He's away from Ephesus. He's doing other things. And in those days, we didn't have Zoom calls, weren't quite so available. And uh, so you don't hear much, as much about how people are doing. So when these brethren came and told John, that Gaius is walking in the truth. Um, John just said, I have no greater joy than this. And if you're a parent or a grandparent, you can relate to that. When your children are walking according to the truth, there is no greater joy. I also realize that in probably all of your life as parents and grandparents, it's not always the case. There's brokenness in our families. There are children that are struggling. Um, Some maybe have rebelled and all those kinds of things. I've experienced it all with my six children. And I'm still praying for one who's never embraced Christ and praying that she will. And another one who I'm just not sure where she's at. The other four are doing really well with their faith. And uh, But when, when I see them walking in the truth, my heart just soars. And uh, so if you're a parent in whatever stage you're at right now, um, you know, rejoice in every step in the right way that your children are making and where that's not happening, just keep praying and keep loving the Lord and keep being authentic. Okay, so, but now we still, we still need to know more. Um, Who were these brethren? Let's read on. Beloved, verse 5, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren. So these are the same brethren that, that uh, spoke in, in verse 3, the brethren that came bore witness. Um, whatever you accomplish for the brethren, especially when they are strangers. So these brethren that came to testify in the church where John brethren were strangers to Gaius. Gaius didn't know them. But somehow they came across Gaius' path and Gaius loved them in the truth. He loved them. And uh, um, so 
that tells us a little bit more about these brethren, but we still want to know more. Um, it says, verse 6, they bear witness to your love before the church. So they're giving a testimony to John's church of how Gaius loved them. But now it's these next verses that um, gripped me back in the 1980s, and uh, I have not been able to shake it. But this is John's word now to Gaius. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. Verse 7. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Okay, now I think we are getting a picture of who these brethren were. Because notice, he says... Um, they went out for the sake of the name, accepting, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. I think this is perhaps the best definition of missionary in the Bible, or at least one of them. The word missionary doesn't show up in the Bible. Um, it means sent one, so the idea of sending is, is all over the place. But... Uh, they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. In other words, these brethren were itinerant evangelists or missionaries of the first century church. They went out. And why did they go out? For the sake of the name. And as they went out for the sake of the name, they accepted nothing from the Gentiles. They didn't go out and sell the gospel. They didn't go out and, and preach on the corners with an open um, jar, you know, donate or anything like that. Freely you have received, freely give, Jesus taught. And uh, these brethren that came to Gaius, I believe, were missionaries. And, uh, and it's, it's the flow of thought in these verses that I want to camp on with you a little bit. Um, so I want you to notice that 7a begins with a for, 8 begins with a therefore. So let's look at the flow of thought. First of all, he's addressing Gaius. He says, you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. You will do well, Gaius, to send them on their way. And uh, two things to point out. First of all, the idea of well, something beautifully, something a beautiful thing. What he did for these brethren was a beautiful thing. You will do well. You will do beautifully. Now, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. And to wash the feet of those who go out proclaiming the Lord reigns. Um, to care for those people is a beautiful thing. But then that word, send them on their way. And that was a question that came up in Sunday school. What's this idea of sending? And, uh, and the word that stands behind that word occurs nine times in the New Testament. And each time it's in a technical sense of helping a Christian worker get from point A to point B in all different kinds of ways. But rather, you are engaging in the great task of spreading the fame of God's name to the ends of the earth by helping someone who is going directly to do that. 
And uh, you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. And uh, just a comment about that. So Gaius is an example of a sender. Um, Verse 7 is an example of these brethren who are goers. There are senders and there are goers. Okay? And you'll notice in verse 8, after it says, They went out for the sake of the name, accepting them from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such people that we may be fellow workers with the truth. So what I want you to see here is that both the goers and the senders in John's mind, are fellow workers with the truth. I used to think when I was a new Christian and missionaries would come to Bethel College where I went to school and speak, and, and uh, I was always tempted to feel like if I don't go to be a missionary, I'm, I'm a second-class citizen. Um, somehow I'm, I'm not doing what I should do, you know. And, and, uh, and so the real superheroes were the, the missionaries and every, everyone else was just kind of ordinary people and to assuage a little guilt, you write a check and help them out once in a while, those kinds of things. But boy, that's not the vision of the New Testament. The vision of the New Testament is that the, those who send and those who go are fellow workers with the truth. They are united together. And look at what unites them. Because it says in verse 6b, you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. So that little phrase there describes how to send in a manner worthy of God. That's amazing. One of the, um, my early mission trips I took was I met a missionary in Mexico and he said, he said, Tom, you know, there's a big difference between a church that has missionaries and a church that sends missionaries. So you can have a missionary and, you know, have them on the back of your bulletin or something like that or highlight them once in a while. But he said to send is a holistic concept. It's so much more. It, for sure, it includes financial help, but it includes practical help. Sometimes that word... Um, for sending is, is accompanying them to the ship and praying for them as they go to the next leg of their missionary journey. You know, so it's, it's just multifaceted what sending is. You'll notice that even in verse um, 5 where it says, Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, especially when they are strangers. Whatever you accomplish. So the way to get behind the missionary task is as diverse as the body of Christ is diverse. Every one of us is different, is unique, and we have special gifts to, and special inklings and special interests. And, uh, and so what you can do to help the goers is limitless. And, uh, you know, we... Our people, you know, every, at Bethlehem, every one of our global partners that goes out, um, they have to have what we call a Barnabas team around them. And that's 10 to 12 people that they have a special relationship with and that this is kind of the inner ring of the senders. The, the church as a whole is the senders, but it's kind of the inner ring of the senders. And these Barnabas teams um, are doing whatever they can to help this missionary survive and thrive 
in their calling. And so it might be um, regular phone calls. Now with communications the way it is, I mean, it's just incredible how easy it is to communicate. And the fact that, that uh, Brian could lead, our, lead us in prayer this morning, I mean, that's pretty amazing. Um, pretty amazing. And, uh, and people, an avid Minnesota Twins fan. And uh, it was 1991, and so his job was to send me statistics um, of how the twins were doing. And, they, and the trouble in those days was that we were three weeks behind. The mail would, you'd send something, and it would maybe take three weeks to get there. Make get there, might not. You'd read it, and then you could send something back, and it may get back home in three weeks, six weeks, maybe not. So it wasn't real reliable. And, uh, but he sent me something, and uh, I got it right before we were getting ready to leave to return home. And, uh, the, and it was about the Twins' start of the 1991 season. And, uh, of course, it was three weeks old news, and they were having one of their typical really bad starts. And so I was kind of disappointed and sad. And, and, uh, but then when I got on the airplane to fly to London and then fly home, I got a, a, a newspaper and, uh, and it said Scott Erickson um, leads the Twins to their 15th consecutive victory. And so they went from last to first in that matter of time, you know. And, and uh, but anyway, that's an interesting, you know, we just, there's just different things, you know, that you're wired in a certain way, and you can really be a blessing. He was a blessing to us. And uh, somebody else thought ahead to send us um, kind of a care package so that when we arrived in Cameroon, it would already be there. And sure enough, the care package was there. Unfortunately, it had been slid open and the contents had been taken out. There were Kool-Aid packets in there and those were even slid open and someone had dumped the Kool-Aid out. But just the thought that uh, she had thought to do that just warmed our hearts so much. And... Uh, um, and then like when we, we try to teach our, our, our people that, that uh, there's things that you can do to help them get ready to leave and then help them while they're on the, t on the field and then help them when they return for a home assignment or if they're done with their mission. And uh, at each phase, there are certain practical things that you can do. You know, so like maybe when they're getting ready to go, you can just watch the kids so that they can maybe have some date nights, you know, or, or you can... Um, Help them, help them pack or help them bring their luggage to the airport or help them, you know, get their house ready to sublet or something like that or say that you'll mow the lawn while they're gone. And I mean, there's all kinds of practical things you can do that just relieves one of these missionaries to, to really focus on what they're focusing on. While they're on the field, you can send them letters, you can email, you can Zoom, you can pray, 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 pray. You can give and support, and and uh, maybe you'll you'll go as a short-term trip to help them in a way that's really relevant to them, you know. And then when they come back, you'll you'll help them find a place to stay. You'll maybe help them find a, a car to use. You'll I mean all kinds of things. So there's just all kinds of practical things that can be involved in the sending, and uh, and so it's a beautiful thing to send on their way in a manner worthy of God. Now, does that mean you put the missionary on a pedestal? No, you don't, you don't do that. They're just a bag of bones like all the rest of us. 
But to send them in a manner worthy of God means that you realize, look, look at, you send them in a manner worthy of God. Why? Because they went out for the sake of the name. So that's what unites the goers and the senders is the supreme value that we place on the, the name of God. And name isn't just G-O-D or J-E-S-U-S. It's, name means all the attributes of God functioning together in perfect harmony to make him the most amazing being that could ever be conceived. God is glorious beyond description. And so we go out for the sake of the name. We want people to know God for who he is. And so you go out for the sake of the name, and because that is so valuable, people that help them send in a manner worthy of the value of that name, in a manner worthy of God. It says in verse 8, it says, Therefore we ought to support such people. And that, that little word, such, there's a special Greek word that calls attention to the quality of the people that they send. You don't just send anybody, but you send a certain kind of person. And in this text, that kind of person is someone that goes out for the Bethlehem of trying to raise up missionaries and what we can do as a local church to prepare them. There's a lot of practical things, but the most important thing is to so preach and so teach that they... They, the deep motivation of their heart is a love for the glory of God in the face of Christ, a love for the gospel, a love for the name of God. And that's, that's our passion, is to raise up those kinds of people and then to see where God sends them. And it might be into the business world, it might be into farming, it might be into um, to some mission field. And, uh, but that's what we want to raise up in our Sunday school and in our homes and all sorts of things is we want our children to become this kind of people. So um, maybe the last thing I'll, I'll say, and then I'm going to just read a couple of quotes from some goers and senders. But I just want to come back to that purpose clause in verse 8. Is we ought to support such people that we may be fellow workers with the truth. And so that's my prayer for Bethlehem and my prayer for your church, my prayer for the church in Cameroon that we've just planted is that this kind of mindset of going for the sake of the name, of sending in a manner worthy of God will permeate and that, that we will not have a hierarchy of who's got the most important jobs or those kinds of things. We'll just all be who God made us to be and use the gifts that God has given us to use. But together, we're united in seeing the name of God championed, beginning right in our own neighborhood, extending to the ends of the earth. And we're fellow workers. It's interesting, you know, when I think of, it's a little bit simplistic to divide up between goers and senders because really the senders, which are most people in the church, don't go and cross salt water. You don't need to cross salt water to be a goer. You're a goer when you go into your classroom. God is globalizing this world. He is bringing the nations to our doorstep. I read that uh, I think the Detroit area has the most number of Iraqis. People from Iraq have chosen Detroit. In Minneapolis, the Somalis from Somali, Somalia. Um, 100,000 Somalis are in the Twin Cities. 
one of the largest unreached people groups in the world. You don't need to cross salt water. Some of our people have gone to Somali, Somaliland, and uh, I've had a chance to go there. And, uh, but God has brought the Somalis to us. How do we reach out to them? How do we show them the love of Christ? How do we share the gospel with them? And, uh, and so I just pray that all of us just have our eyes open, you know, to, first of all, love our own people, our own family, and people that are just like us. Of course, we want to do that. But we also want to cross cultures. That's what missions really is, is it's a crossing of cultures to another nation, to another people with the love of Jesus. And so just think, you know, who, who am I working with? Who's in my company or who's in my school or who just moved into my neighborhood or, 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 or just what people groups has God assembled in this vicinity? And say, Lord, somehow I want to be involved even though I'm, I'm stationed here and you've called me to be right here, I want to somehow affect the nations personally. But then also as a sender. And, uh, but there might be some in here that God has put in your hearts to say, I do want to go. I want to be sent out from this church. And uh, I want to go to the least reached parts of the world. And, uh, and so if all of us learn how to be senders, when those people rise up, like, like a Brian and Heather, and, you know, that you will send them in a manner worthy of God. I wish you could hear Brian talk about you guys. He just loves you. You guys have sent him well. And, uh, and Heather feels the same way, and their family feels the same way. But um, there will be others. As the gospel is preached here and... and uh, and it's, there's going to be more that are going to go out. And, uh, but either way, it's, it's the, the joy of our life is, is to be engaged in the global purpose of God and uh, to live for his glory. And so I want to read a couple quotes in closing. One is from David Livingstone. He was a famous missionary um, who went and, and got lost in Africa and... and uh, and Stanley came and found him, and he said, Dr. Livingston, I presume. I mean, it's kind of a famous little statement. But Livingstone really was an amazing man, and uh, he opened up a lot of things for missions in the most difficult areas of Africa. And uh, he came back to Cambridge, which was his home, or at least he was passing through Cambridge, and he was kind of being celebrated. And... Uh, not all missionaries are celebrated, but he was being celebrated. And, and this is his, was his response. He said, For my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and bright hope of glorious destiny hereafter. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Rather, I say it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then, with the foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life, may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. 
So as we talk about missions here in this church, we're not trying to exalt superheroes. It's just you just do what God calls you to do. And if he calls you to go, and there'll be suffering involved, but there is joy. There is joy. Here's someone from a sender. Back in the turn of the century from the 1800s to the 1900s, there was a missionary movement. And a lot of students were being sent out and, uh, and formed around them was uh, um, really a group of business people that just got behind them and supported them and just spread the vision for sending. And uh, J. Campbell White was a secretary of the layman's missionary movement, and he said this in 1909. He said, most people are not satisfied with the permanent output of their lives. Nothing can wholly satisfy the life of Christ within his followers except, except the adoption of Christ's purpose toward the world he came to redeem. Fame, pleasure, and riches are but husks and ashes in contrast with the boundless and abiding joy of working with God for the fulfillment of his eternal plans. Those who are putting everything into Christ's undertaking are getting out of life its sweetest and most priceless rewards. So I just want to challenge you that whatever sphere of life you're in right now, number one, don't assume that you'll never engineer and that God just surprised him and said, I'm going to make you a missionary in in, uh, in, in Cameroon. And uh, you're going to have to learn French in your 50s. That's not easy to do. And, uh, but God just has surprises. Um, but a lot of you, he'll just call to stay right here. And this is where exactly where you should be. How do I bring the love and justice of Jesus into my neighbor's life, into the nations that he has brought around us? And, uh, and so um, just... I just want you to leave just saying, Lord, here I am. Send me. And uh, send me tomorrow. Who do you want me to cross paths with tomorrow? Who needs an encouraging word? Who needs to hear the gospel? Who needs to be visited? Which, who, among, who are the sick that need to be visited? Or people in prison that need to be visited? Or whatever. You know, just to have this kingdom mindset is what we want to shape us because Jesus says seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be provided everything else that you need will be provided so may the Lord empower us to seek his kingdom first to send in a manner worthy of God go out for the sake of the name being fellow workers with the truth let me pray Father I thank you so much for giving us the privilege to Listen to the Apostle John and an eyewitness of your life and death and resurrection and ascension. And Lord, that we could listen to this man at his elderly years and just to see his joy and to hear his words and his admonition. So Lord, make it real for us, Lord, and help us to live it out in the way that you prescribe, for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.